Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, it was hopeless. I'm furious. Um, for all the talk of compassion, what we see is a, a chancellor who's who's picking the pocket of the people of West Yorkshire to fill the black hole that their economic chaos has created. And he's taken a, a, a really uh, backward step when it comes to levelling up because we've not got any more uh, investment in infrastructure. Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast brought to you by Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo, Newcastle Chronicle and Hull Daily Mail. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons taking another look at the big politics issues and what they mean for the 15 million people who call the North of England home. It's been a week where the biggest politics story in the North, I think, has been the fallout from the inquest into the shocking death of Awab Ishak, the two-year-old boy who died in a mouldy flat in Rochdale despite his family pleading with their social landlord for help. The awful details of that case, first reported by the Manchester Evening News, prompted a statement in the Commons by Housing Secretary Michael Gove and calls for dramatic reforms to improve the terrible conditions some social housing tenants are forced to live in. This week on the podcast, we look at the wider issue of the health of children in the North. Last December, a landmark report laid bare the growing health inequalities between children in our region and those elsewhere in the country. But what's happened since then? I asked Emma Lewalbuck, a North East MP who set up a new cross-party parliamentary group to look into just this issue. So we all owe it to the children in our area and the children in the communities we live in to do something about this. We have a unique voice that they don't have. Their families don't have a voice in Parliament. We do and we should be their conduit for that and we should do everything in our power to make a difference so that these children have the same life chances as children elsewhere in the country. But there has been some good news for the North too in recent days, specifically a shake-up of the way Arts Council England money is distributed to ensure more schemes outside London get public funding. With Northern Arts and Culture now seemingly with momentum behind them, we spoke to Randall Bryan, one of the people behind a pioneering new arts centre in Manchester, about his hopes for the future. I think that all of our work that we incubate in the Factory International will look to travel the world and look to carry Manchester's brand um, way outside our borders. When you start seeing kind of work of that scale, um, traveling the globe, and you know that it's got the hallmark of Made in Manchester, that's something, that's a really important calling card, I think, for the region. But as we record on Thursday afternoon, the big story is Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement, where the Chancellor spelled out his plans to help the UK ride out the coming economic storm. In terms of the big picture, Households will face increased energy bills, high inflation and tax hikes as the country is hit by a recession. The economy is expected to shrink by 1.4% next year 
and inflation could be up to 9.1% this year, going down a bit next year. But what will be the impact in the North and West Yorkshire? Let's hear from Tracy Rabin, the Labour Mayor of West Yorkshire, who's been watching the statement closely. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me. No problem. So what did you make of it from a West Yorkshire point of view? Well, it was hopeless. I'm furious. Um, for all the talk of compassion, what we see is a, a chancellor who's who's picking the pocket of the people of West Yorkshire to fill the black hole that their economic chaos has created. And he's taken a, a, a really uh, backward step when it comes to levelling up because we've not got any more uh, investment in infrastructure. The, his talk about the core uh, Northern Powerhouse Rail, that is exactly what we're doing already with our Transpennine upgrade, something we've been calling for for nearly a decade. Um, and he didn't even take the opportunity to give uh, Bradford a new railway station. I mean, West Yorkshire wasn't even mentioned once. And it feels, for all that talk of compassion, putting the the emphasis to solve this problem um, on the backs of local authorities and local authorities across West Yorkshire have already been cut to the bone. It just looks like, to be quite frank, he's just a coward. He's not going to do it himself. Um, so he's just given it to local authorities to say to the public, well, there's 5% extra tax on, you know, um, for, for the services we provide. And these services are going to be needed more than ever before because of the ineptitude of this government. There are people choosing between heating and eating. People who are, I, I read the other day that a, a guy was taking up his floorboards because he was so cold in his house. What a state to be in. And we've got, um, uh, we've got Jeremy Hunt in London, um, as slick as you like, saying, well, actually, it's down to local authorities to put up council tax. This is not good enough. And it just shows you exactly what they think about the North. You mentioned council tax. So local authorities can now raise council tax by 5% without holding a referendum, which is up uh, up from 2.99% previously. I mean, do, do you expect councils, mostly Labour-run councils in West Yorkshire, they're going to put up their council tax by the full whack because they have to don't they because of these big gaps in their in their budgets that they need to they need to fill but it's the raging inflation that's been caused by Liz Trusser's chaos and not even an apology not even a mention that this is created by by number 10 the predecessor and of course they're going to have to put it up they're talking about you know holes in their budget of tens of millions of pounds talking about having to close swimming pools and libraries at exactly the time when the people of West Yorkshire need absolutely need those services so my point is that Jeremy Hunter's forced councils to have to take this decision because he doesn't have the 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 answers he doesn't have the solutions so he's passed them on to local authorities and actually you'll have seen that um, only last week a couple of conservative local authorities were saying they're going to go bankrupt this raging inflation has has been part of the problem and he's just not tackling it and he's he's making that working people dig further into their pockets to bail him out now to dig into something you mentioned earlier he so he didn't mention west yorkshire but he did mention Northern Powerhouse Rail, and he said he was going to deliver the core Northern Powerhouse Rail, which is, uh, I think, has confused a few people, hasn't it? Because there have been various versions of what 
what does Northern Powerhouse Rail mean? Obviously, when Boris Johnson came into power, he spoke about a full new high-speed rail link between Leeds and Manchester. Northern leaders say that it has to include a stop in Bradford. So is your understanding from what the Chancellor said today, we're not getting either of those things, are we? We're going back to the version that the government outlined last year, so the integrated rail plan version that is not a full high-speed link. And also the HS2 link, eastern leg to Leeds, is, is, remains, is, not, is not happening still. Exactly. So uh, we had Boris Johnson in front of Stevenson's rocket saying he was going to build a crossrail for the north. That East uh, Manchester to Leeds new line with the stop in Bradford. And then uh, we have Liz Truss also saying she was going to build it. And now we've got yet another U-turn that is going back to, like you say, the integrated rail plan, which is almost a year old now, um, which is I'm trying to badge it as core is just bonkers because it is actually TransPennine upgrade with HS2, which has been agreed from uh, from Birmingham up to Manchester. And it just tips into West Yorkshire slightly by going to Marsden. Now, Marsden is a tiny rural station that is going to be taking HS2 trains and and then hopefully, you know, that electrification. But this is not going to solve the problem of capacity. Because if you are behind a broken train, there is no way to get east to west. You just have to wait on the platform. There is no way to get from Manchester to Leeds if you have a problem on that network. That is why it's really important to have that new line. And to be honest, it's also about investing in infrastructure at a time when we need those good jobs. We need that investment. That that Northern Powerhouse Rail is how we see it, would bring investment and growth to our region of £30 billion. It, it would give us 130,000 jobs. Just imagine what that's going to do for growth. It is so short term of Jeremy Hunt to, with, to pull back on that investment in, in infrastructure. And I know that Northerners, Northern leaders will all be furious Uh, yet again, another U-turn from government. Now, another thing that came out of today's statement, investment zones, which I imagine your uh, mayoral authority will have had some involvement in. In, Under under Liz Truss's short-lived premiership, these plans were unveiled for low-tax investment zones around the country with lots of tax breaks to uh, incentivise businesses and cuts in red tape and so forth. It seems like that we're not going to see those anymore and the government is going in a different direction, maybe working with universities a bit more. I mean, is that, I don't, I don't know how much work your authority or others in West Yorkshire did, but is that, that seems like another, another U-turn. Is, that, is it a good thing? Were you in favour of investment zones in the first place? Well, look, investment zones in principle, any investment, yes, please. But we were very worried about the impact it could have on workers' paying conditions and the environments. However, we enthusiastically bid into these opportunities. It took time and it took effort from our partners as well. Um, the fact that they've been scrapped is no surprise. My question would be to Jeremy Hunt when he's talking about uh, redefining these zones uh, around universities in with areas of disadvantage. Please don't 
go to your default setting where everything is about big cities and Cambridge and so on. We've got fantastic um, world beating universities in Bradford, in Huddersfield, where investment in our sector, in that sector would be really valuable. So I'll be definitely making the case. But this gets me, Rob, I've spoken to you many times on the the frustration of being the mayor, that the beauty contests where we have to bid in for pots of money, taking time and effort only for governments to then change their mind or it doesn't, you know, we don't get it. It is not the way to run a country. It is about surely, he was, uh, the Chancellor was talking about the amazing mayors um, across the country. I tried not to take offence that he only mentioned conservative mayors, but that, that we can deliver on government um, ambitions, on growth and investment but they have to give us the powers to do it. And a direct line to Treasury is surely the way to do that. Regardless of you know the party politics of it, I, I guess I think most people would accept that Jeremy Hunt has inherited a extremely challenging uh, task in getting the economy uh, into any kind of shape. And you could obviously attribute some of that to what happened under Liz Truss. But of course, there's the wider global uh, economic challenges and Vladimir Putin's legal war, etc. Could he really have done anything different to what he did today in terms of you know, basically the austerity measures that he's bringing in? Is, is there a, an alternative route that he could have pursued or he should have pursued from your point of view? It is about political choices, non-DOM status, um, uh, the bigger windfall taxes, um, uh, higher rates of uh, taxation for the highest earners. We've seen a, a massive rise in the number of millionaires in the UK over the last couple of years. Of course, he could have done more and in a different way. He has chosen to make the public pay for their mistakes when actually with more um, uh, uh, more uh, understanding of actually who has got the broadest shoulders, he could have done different things, there's no doubt about it. Tracy Braben, Mayor of West Yorkshire, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure, good to see you, Rob. It was nearly a year ago that a major report emerged which painted a stark picture of inequality for children growing up in the north of England post-pandemic compared with those in the rest of the country. The massive costs to society and the UK's economy of rising inequality were outlined in the Child of the North, Building a Fairer Future After COVID-19 report, written by more than 40 leading academics from across the north of England and with the help of the Northern Health Science Alliance. It looked at a wide range of factors from child poverty to children in care to build up a picture of the challenges faced by the young people trying to make their way across the region. And there are some stark figures in there. Children in the north of England's loss of learning experience over the course of the pandemic was estimated to cost £24.6 billion in wages over lifetime earnings. And the report sets out 18 clear recommendations to tackle the widening gap, but did anyone listen? Emma Lewellbuck is one of the people hoping to make people listen, and she chairs a new all-party parliamentary group dedicated to the Child of the North. So, welcome, Emma. Good afternoon. Hi, Rob. Nice to have you on. So, can you just tell me what about this report caught your attention and prompted you to get involved? 
Well, I think it was just highlighting that we've known for a long time, you know, under, under the current government that there was growing disparities between children in the north compared to children elsewhere in the country. And I just think this report really laid bare that far from levelling up in some areas of the country, children were suffering and struggling more than others. And since the report was published, the northeast, so my own read, my own part of the north, has now got the highest rate of child poverty in the country at 38%. So it felt like we can't wait for government to do anything here. So we need to act. So setting up this cross-party, all-party parliamentary group to try and come up with some recommendations and some campaign points to push government on felt like the best way forward. So can you just explain to our listeners what the significance of an all-party parliamentary group is? So what, what, what purpose does it serve and how does it, how does it work? So it's cross-party, which is really good because that means you've got people from every single political party on there. So you'll have Conservatives on there, you've got Labour MPs on there, sometimes you have SMP, DUP. So it's stronger than just... Because, you know, people, your, your listeners will know what Parliament's like. It's very combative. You know, you have different sides of the chamber where people are constantly arguing their point of view. An all-party parliamentary group means that on rare occasion... Instead of that arguing, you can have people uniting across the political divide for a common issue to try and get some action. Now, if you've got government people on that um, group with you as well, you know, people who are on the government benches and are in the ruling party, then they are more likely to have the ear of the decision makers so they can help push for that change as well. So it's good that I was elected as co-chair and the other chair is Mary Robinson, who's on the Conservative side of, um, who's on in the Conservative Party. So together with the rest of the MPs on that group, we can push for change and our voice is louder because it's cross-party and there's more of us. And was it easy to get her involved? Did you take some persuading or was it relatively easy? I think, you know, the, the group's great. Um, pretty much everyone on the group are former children of the North ourselves and all live in our patches. So we're really passionate and we can see this poverty being played out every single week on our doorstep. So we all owe it to the children in our area and the children in the communities we live in to do something about this. We have a unique voice that they don't have. Their families don't have a voice in Parliament we do, and we should be their conduit for that, and we should do everything in our power to make a difference so that these children have the same life chances as children elsewhere in the country. How does this subject sort of resonate with you in terms of your constituency in South Shields? I think I saw that last year South Tyneside was ranked as the 19th unhealthiest place in England. So presumably the issues that are described in the report are ones that you sort of see on your doorstep every, every day. Yeah, um, I mean, ever since I've I've been the MP here for um, since 2013, and one of the first things that I did was set up an all-party parliamentary group with other colleagues around hunger because I could see the growing levels. And this wasn't people who, you know, these are people who are in work as well. There's people going out and working for their poverty day in and day out. They still can't afford the basics. They can't feed their families and they can't afford to put the, put the heating on. And... That was already the case back then in 2013. It has been exacerbated. The pandemic exacerbated it, but also policies from government exacerbated it because all governments have choices. You know, the last Labour government dragged 800,000 children out of poverty. So policy does work. So again, um, when I first got elected, set up this 
leave PPG on hunger, realised that there was going to be no change in government. So those of us on that APPG set up a charity called Feeding Britain, which is now a national network and that has money that it gives to local areas to help in food banks, to help clothes, clothes banks and to help with fuel bills. So because I don't, I don't like APPGs, some of them can be a token shock. I never wanted that. I wanted to make a difference. And we did that with the last APPG I was on. We made sure that we got money before. Have you heard of the holiday activity and food programme that the government do now? I've heard of it. Maybe you could just explain a bit more. Yeah. So they basically, um, in the school holidays, issued money to local authorities to make sure that children who were recipients of free school meals, when the holidays come, that, that that's cut off. So the holiday and activity food programme made sure made sure that money was given to local areas to local charities to then fund those meals through the summer so no children went without now prior to the government issuing that money our fundraised locally and we ran our own schemes here with a network of charities so children in south shields and across south tyneside my borough weren't losing out and then over time the government eventually agreed to fund that after a lot of pressure was put on them um, I think they're withdrawing it again now, which means local areas like mine and my charity will have to go back to trying to get the money to make sure our children don't go without in the holidays. Now, this Child of the North report has been out since just before last Christmas. I mean, do you think the findings on it of it are sort of on the government radar as an issue? Because I know one of the missions that were in Michael Gove's levelling up white paper, which came out in February, was that by 2030, the gap in healthy life expectancy between local areas, where it's lowest and highest, will have narrowed. So that would suggest that Michael Gove, at least, did think that this is an issue worth addressing. But do you, do you think the government is listening to people who are talking about health inequalities or, or, or listening to you enough? I mean, I think the levelling up white paper had, it was good in identifying the problems that the government have caused in that time in office, but it wasn't very good at actually seeing how they'd solve these problems. So I identified the problems they'd made, but then didn't say anything about how they would reach those aims. So yes, what Michael Gove said sounds great, but there's no actual meat behind that. There's nothing there to identify how he's going to make that happen. And that's why APPGs like this can maybe help them out a little bit and give them some ideas of how that can happen. So with that in mind, I mean, if there was one finding in the report that you'd want Michael Gove or the health secretary or the prime minister to pay attention to? Are there any particular things that you think they, they really ought to be paying attention to from this report? I mean, I think overall it's, you know, we, we've got a cost, things have, things have moved on since that report was released. We've now got a cost of living crisis. People can't afford their fuel bills. We're coming up to a really difficult winter. Um, you know, people are people are rightly going on strike because they're not getting paid enough to survive and they've, they've had enough. They can't take it anymore. So I think all of these issues need a whole government approach to them. You know, people need well-paid, secure work. No child in a country as rich as ours should be going hungry. It's about it goes back again to those policy decisions around what's a priority for the government and an absolute priority should be that no child should be going hungry when there's a country as in a, in a country as wealthy as ours. What are your 
hopes in terms of what you can do? Obviously, you're talking about the the, the benefits that come from working cross-party and getting Conservatives on board. Are, are you hoping that you can make a bit of progress with this or because of everything else that's, you know, everything else that's going on at the moment, the cost of living crisis and the energy crisis? There's a lot of things on the, the government's plate, aren't there? Do you, do you think, are you, are you optimistic you can you can make a bit of progress? I think so. I mean, there's, like I said, there's, it's it's a large all-party parliamentary group. We're all very passionate who are on there. We've got a lot of experts who've gave us evidence to back up the stuff that we are seeing. And there are things the government can do. And so it's about putting that pressure on. You know, historically, um, I managed to get some success with my school breakfast bill because that was cross-party, food insecurity bill. So that was all done from the point of opposition. So there is no reason why, if we work hard enough, are loud enough and keep pushing, that change can happen. You know, th- there are some some things that we all know that would work instantly, you know, increasing eligibility for free school meals. For one, there's 800,000 children who are missing out. You know, there's no reason why the government couldn't do that. In terms of government spend, it's it's not as expensive as other things. They could, you know, they could scrap the two child limit. There's, there's all kind that could raise benefits in line with inflation. So there are things they can do. And these are initial quick steps, but we're going to be looking at stuff in depth and keep coming back. I mean, our first, I think our first report is due out in December because we can't wait. We need to get that out as quick as possible because it's urgent. And our first session was around hunger and fuel poverty. And we'll be making recommendations to government early December with our first report. Well, I can't wait to hear or read what you've got to say. Um, Emma, Lou Buck, thank you so much for speaking to us today. big story in London cultural circles in the last few days is the future of the English National Opera. It's currently based in London, but Arts Council England, which provide much of its funding, say it will only carry on getting public sector support if it moves out of the capital, possibly to Manchester. The likes of opera singer Sir Bryn Terfel are up in arms, but the move is part of a wider initiative by the Arts Council to prioritise cultural schemes outside London. It means you've seen projects across the North be named as so-called national portfolio organisations for the first time, meaning they'll get vital public subsidy to offer arts and culture in our towns and cities. But even before this announcement, 2022 was shaping up to be a really positive year for Northern arts and culture, with a host of new venues either opening or reopening across the region. Here are just a couple of examples. Merseyside's Shakespeare North Playhouse, a world-class cultural hub with a 350-seat Elizabethan-inspired theatre at its core, and The Factory, Manchester International Festival's new permanent home, is set to reshape the city's cultural output and standing and promises one of Europe's most ambitious and adventurous year-round creative programmes. So, who better to give us a sense of the momentum across Northern culture than Randall Bryan, Executive Director and Deputy Chief Executive at Factory International? Randall, it's a pleasure to have you on our podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. Not not a problem at all. So the schemes I've just mentioned are just two of the current or planned big cultural attractions in the North. Now, uh, obviously, the arts and culture sectors have been through a lot of pain in recent months, in the last two years or so, with the pandemic and now the cost of living crisis. How are you feeling right now about the future of arts and culture in the North? 
Um, to be honest with you, I think it was um, a great move uh, from the Arts Council um, last week to continue to increase the support for cultural um, venues in the north. I think that landmark investments like Factor International do really start to show that we can create some of the world's most exciting programming outside of London and almost turn into a, a kind of global destination for arts and culture um, that originates and is born, cultivated within the region. Um, I think it's a, it's a really big and continued progressive step forward. I think if you look at just some of the the statistics, there's a 95% increase in levelling up for cultural places, um, which, which again, really re- reaffirms uh, their kind of continued commitment. And even before that, like I was saying, there's, there was quite a lot to be optimistic about. Did you already have a bit of a sense of sort of momentum for arts and culture in the North? I think working at Factory International, you get every day that sense of of momentum because it's such a um, incredible project. Um, for for those that might not be as aware, Factory International is an arts and cultural destination that's being um, developed in the heart of Manchester. Um, it's a venue that unifies various different art forms, so brings uh, contemporary dance, theatre performance um, together with with more kind of classical um, artistic production. So really, is a pioneering and, and dynamic um, venue, and I suppose understanding when you go into the factory international that we will have some of the world's greatest artists creating work of scale that's that's never before been seen in the region and and is unparalleled in many venues across the UK and Europe for me it's a it's a daily reminder of just how exciting manchester is particularly for a kind of cultural destination and i think um i've gravitated to manchester throughout my life and i've always had that sense that manchester is the place where things happen um, and I think now uh, we're seeing cities like Manchester and these regions really turn into those destinations where young, creative people want to come explore and thrive. And so I hope the Arts Council's movement has has essentially kind of come to the same understanding. You know, there's so many businesses, so many um, young innovators, entrepreneurs move into the region now. And I think that finding ways to capitalise on that um, and to, to continue that investment, um, I think is, is can only be a good thing. And I mean, your hope presumably is that Factory International won't just be something that people in Manchester go to see or people in the northwest or even the wider north. You want it to be a, a UK wide, if not you know, Europe wide attraction that, that is because of the strength of the sort of cultural offering you've got. Yeah, I think Manchester International Festival um, have been the kind of originators of the vision for Factory International. Um, the festival has been going on for, for nearly 20 years and and has always been a destination that uh, curates original work with the world's kind of most renowned artists. So in that sense, we've always been international in our outlook. I think Factory, I think Manchester International Festival has been really, really positively contributing to people understanding that Manchester is a, a really important destination for, for new and creative work. I think that all of our work that we incubate in the Factory International will look to travel the world and look to carry Manchester's brand um, way outside our borders, which can only be a positive thing, not just in the economic benefits of people coming to the region, but also um, people looking to invest from overseas, people looking to, to move their, their careers, companies, individuals. Um, when you start seeing kind of work of that scale, um, traveling the globe, and you know that it's got the hallmark of Made in Manchester, that's something that's a really important calling card, I think, for the region. It's a very ambitious project, obviously, and I, I've seen reported that the, the budget is nearly doubled over the course of its development. And are you, are you still planning to sell 
the naming rights to cover the costs? And are you, are you confident that that will bring in the money, the money that you you need to make sure the project is sort of viable from a commercial point of view? Firstly, um, I've been on this project for just about three years, and uh, if you'd have told me how much we'd have gone through in that three-year period when I was uh, starting to sign up, I don't know if I'd run for the hills, but I've been falling off my chair. It's been um, an incredibly unique period of human history, hasn't it? And the the continued commitment from everyone involved to make sure that that this project hasn't been compromised in its uh, scale and ambition, I think, is is an absolute testament to to Manchester City Council and to and to those that have worked on it because it has been so tough and and as you mentioned earlier on it you know will continue to be challenging with cost of living crisis impacting on on audiences and impacting on our finances to to run projects so i think naming rights are a key part of our strategy i I think that as a destination for people looking to invest in a in a visionary purpose-driven um cultural kind of product it's a really attractive uh, proposition i think that a lot of the organizations that I speak to, I've been working in kind of commercial worlds for, for a number of years and people really do want to, um, ever more so now, I think, take a responsibility to give back and have a progressive and positive impact on customers, audiences, uh, communities. And a lot of the partners that we're speaking to want to support those visions, and whether it's Factory Academy, our education program, the work that we do in communities. The truth is, I think, as I was building towards, arts and culture venues like ours need a mixed economy. Um, you know, we are um, generously funded by um, Manchester City Council and and Arts Council England, but the reality is the world is, is changing at a rapid pace um, and organisations need to think how they can act and behave more commercially so naming rights are a key part of it but thinking about sponsorships um thinking about our um, philanthropic campaigns finding people that do want to invest in in kind of these purposeful projects thinking about how we can have a mixed program um so that we're not only producing this one-of-a-kind kind of work of international scale but also thinking about how we can become accessible to to the main stream audiences, the the kids that have never been into an arts and culture venue before. And often that will mean working with brands because they already have such an incredible relationship with these young people. So I think that's a lot of what gets me excited about the project is thinking about it as a mixed economy. The venue will also play a significant role in music. Um, there will be a number of music gigs, you know, up to 80 gigs per year, working with mainstream and up, up and coming local talent. And again, that's a really unique uh, attribute for for a project like Factory International. So, I think that we are a, a venue trying to be relatable to modern audiences and mo- modern kind of economic demand. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned uh, the task of sort of getting your uh, arts and culture in front of wider audience as possible, and obviously that is one of the big challenges, isn't it? As well as the sort of issue of skills development to support the work that you're doing i mean what are you doing on those two agendas you mentioned you were sort of thinking about that quite a lot presumably that's one of the big challenges for for you and for sort of the the arts and cultural sector more widely across the north i think as a personal kind of motivation for me taking this this job um i worked in london for the most most kind of majority of my career and I had an auntie that I ended up having to to stay with and, and kind of couch surf as you try and get your break in the industry you know working as a runner and um, with a backpack full of tapes sprinting around Soho barely enough money to eat let alone get the tube and, and public transport and and that 
not an uncommon story for young kind of creatively passionate people across the UK that their only option was to up sticks and and leave and, and go to London. Now, without the support of bank mum and dad, you know, nowadays that that's nearly impossible. Um, and so you've got huge amounts of really passionate young people that don't think the arts are for them just because it's simply not accessible. I've always wanted to change that dynamic. Um, I do think this latest kind of MPO funding round helps to really continue that transition. One of the other challenges that we'll have as a, as a sector is uh, how we develop our own cultural leaders um, in the future. You know, I think that we're still looking at the cultural institutions of, of bigger cities to really kind of find that talent. Whereas we hope at Factory International, what we can do is make a long-term commitment in the development of young people so that not only can we get the junior and introductory roles filled by by young people from across the region, but also start building them so that they can have careers, not only within um, the UK's international cultural sector, but hopefully become kind of international um, leaders for arts and culture uh, outside of Manchester as well. So that's, that's our commitment, really. It is a long-term commitment through Factory Academy. Um, we've been doing it already for five years. We've seen some great results. Just a couple of headlines, 65% of all of the people that have been through our programmes have come from uh, lower socioeconomic and underrepresented backgrounds. And 55% of people that have come through the programmes are actually now employed or in higher education. So I think the evidence is there that if you invest in a cultural venue like Factory International and at the heart of it have an education programme, you can really do some quite transformative things. There's no denying, I think, that Manchester is booming. You alluded to it earlier. You've got the, the city's first public park in 100 years, a big design, redesign of Piccadilly Gardens, uh, a new £1 billion investment in Salford Central. But obviously we're a podcast that looks at the whole of the whole of the north of England. Is there a danger, do you think, that Manchester becomes to the rest of the north what London is to the country, sort of this big... Mono, cultural monolith that sort of sucks everything in to the detriment of other less well-off places is that something we need to guard against or, or is that maybe perhaps that's a, a good thing if you have a really dominant one really dominant area there are some great cities in in the northern regions um, and manchester is is receiving significant investment I, I think that we've got to think about this as medium to long term you know young people Coming up, people wanting to relocate and live their lives from the south and an investment going from the south into the north can only be a good thing in terms of bringing people up to understand that the north has some incredible destinations that they can thrive and grow. Um, so I think firstly, just getting people you know, to understand opportunities exist in this region. I think that we're a much more transient um, working kind of society now you know you don't have to work nine to five in the offices anymore um so i would hope to imagine that there are a number of people that do see job opportunities in manchester but may want to live elsewhere in the in the north that is either better for family setups or, or cheaper um housing accommodation um, and then have the ability to travel and, and work in manchester so i think that when we look back on this in five years time i think the flexibility around where you need to be in the world of work will mean that a lot of people end up moving around the regions, whether they're working in Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester. I think that's going to be a lot more transient. Manchester being a bit of a flagship and being a bit of a destination to to kind of um, continue to encourage that, I, th I think is a good thing.
I just add to that, I think better collaborations between organizations. Um, I think that when we think about our programs, we also want to be relevant in Sheffield. We want to be relevant in Leeds. We want to be relevant in, in Liverpool. And I think culturally, finding that shift. I know the transportation infrastructure is not brilliant across these different cities to enable quick access. Um, but I think thinking more as a as a collective, how we work together, how we bring audiences in and out of different cities, um, I think is going to be really important. Now, the final question, Randall, you mentioned, uh, well, we've been talking about the, the Arts Council uh, funding. And obviously up here in amongst Northern commentators, people have been quite happy with the direction of travel. But I think if you were to read some of the London-based media, the narrative is uh, the, the sort of shock and horror that certain institutions are uh, losing their funding contingent possibly on having to move up up north like English National Opera. I mean, uh, what, what do you make of that specifically? Would it, would it be the worst thing in the world if English National Opera had to up and move to, to Manchester? I think that there's a number of places the National Opera could be looking at. I know there's been an association with Manchester. Um, I think, again, such a prestigious organisation actually moving to the region um, would be great for our perspective in terms of elevating perception. What I would say is that these regions, you know, using Manchester as an example again, can be catalysts for innovation that these organisations may have never needed to have considered before. Um, I truly believe it is a more entrepreneurial, um, more kind of creatively fluid area of the UK than London you know having worked in there there's a status quo of how business needs to be done whereas I think we are much more trying to pioneer new models trying to pioneer new approaches um, economically it's, a, it's still difficult but you know sometimes more more freeing um, again going back to the younger people there are opportunities for younger people to really start to contribute and build their careers in these organizations because they can afford to live in these regions and, and work at the the cultural organizations that we've mentioned so whilst it's difficult I, I do think in the long run um they all really benefit from the entrepreneurial uh, opportunities that are in manchester and beyond fantastic randall bryan factory international thank you so much for speaking to us today thanks for your time Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.